This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, let's get started. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. It's the Friday edition, and we got our Friday panel here. The Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo, Minister at Trinity St. Paul Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts, and the former NDP MPP for Parkdale High Park. Good afternoon, Sherry. Good afternoon, John. Great day for talk radio. There you go. I learned you're good after all this while. Uh, John Capobianco, Senior VP, Senior Partner and National Practice Lead for Public Affairs in Fleischman Hilliard's Toronto office. John, welcome. Welcome to you. And I'm always jealous that, that Sherry gets the bell and I don't. <laughs> you got to play your cards right. We'll give it to you momentarily. Michael Giles is with us too, uh, government operative for 30 years, currently Chief of Staff to Deputy Mayor Anna Byla. Why, why are you offended by government operatives? <laughs> it sounds like a Jean Claude Carré novel or something. <laughs> James Bond. James Bond. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, you are an operative, yes, at various <laughs> levels of government. Uh, and so you guys obviously know how this is uh, playing out. You, you've seen this movie. Oftentimes, so have I, so have parents. It's the uh, pending QP strike come Monday if there's no resolution to uh, the talks that are taking place as we speak. Uh, we're told they're back at the bargaining table. Now, uh, my question, I'll just throw it around the horn to get a, an overview from how you see it at the 30,000-foot level. Uh, is this something that is a fight for social justice, or do you think it's political in that uh, perhaps the unions are taking the occasion to embarrass Doug Ford and, by extension, Andrew Scheer? How does Sherry DeNovo see it? Um, it's social justice. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say it's not political either, but but it's certainly social justice, and it's the beginning. It's not. I mean, it's QP first, then it will be Ontario secondary teachers. It'll be uh, elementary teachers. It's it's going to be Ontario public servants. I mean, wait for it. We saw it during the Mike Harris era, and we're going to see it again because you can't gut public services, which is what's happening, without a reaction from the people who work there. And I I think that's what you're getting. But they've actually spent more money on education. Well, no, depending on how you slice it. I mean, they're firing, depending on how you count Without it. firing. But yeah, 3,000 teachers on the chopping block. I just it's talked to Robin Pilkey at TDSB. That, well, you can't cut back on the money you're spending. You can't increase class sizes. Well, is attrition firing? Well, you can't. You can't they literally cut $235 million just from the special ed programs. Mm. I mean, these are real cuts, and they're in real time, and people are going to react to that. And teachers especially and boards too so i mean this is to be expected and uh and it's not this is the beginning not the end of it well that's an ominous note then uh if you're right but you know when the government's put in a contingency fund of 1.6 billion dollars to transition as the attrition rates you know with retirement and such uh teachers according to again the uh i guess uh not the parliamentary budget office, but uh, financial accountability. Yeah, yeah. F- financial accountability office saying, uh, yeah, ten thousand jobs in the next four years, but through attrition. And the one point six billion means that there would be, uh, you know, enough funds there to maintain sort of a seamless uh, grandfathering out of some of these positions. So I, don't, I mean, I don't think that's firing, but still, to my original point, is this some social justice starting to rear its head. This is the first salvo, as Sherry says, or is there something else going on here? I mean, they've always fought against every government, the teachers' unions and the school unions, haven't they? Well, they have, especially especially if you're a conservative government. And, and but, but let's make no mistake about it. This government has spent more on education than any other government has. It's a fact. And they've also they've also given school boards a chance to be able to go to them and say, look, at, we're able to help you. We'll, we will help you, school board, find savings. 
clearly you can find one or two or three percent savings within your administration that can actually help with respect to overall costs. Because over the last number of years, we all know that more and more government has been spending money uh, and and enrollment has been going down, right? So there's been a huge hiring of teachers and, and, and staff when, when we know that enrollment has been going down. So the fact of the matter is, John, is that this union, the, it's we've, you know, before school, we've got an election campaign. They don't like Doug Ford. And it just seems to be this confluence of, of, of you know, things that are happening that give them a chance to be able to strike. And Minister Lecce, I think, to his credit, has been very, very clear about how he wants in good faith to be negotiating. He wants them back at the table. It's been the union who's always walked away from the table, not the government uh, side of it. So it's, it's, it, there's no question that they want to be able to capitalize on this political that's going on now with this campaign, and they want to be able to stick it to Doug Ford. All right, uh, Michael, do you see it the same way? Plus, uh, I'm kind of curious, too, because, you know, when you're s- suggesting a work-to-rule campaign on Monday and within 30, 36 hours, you're already uh, heading for a full-blown strike. It shows that maybe uh, the intent was always there to go to strike. Well, and that is an, that's a difficult narrative for the, for the unions, quite frankly, because, um, you know, the government messaging on this, uh, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, has effective you know they're going out there saying you know and they're making it about 126 days and all this kind of thing you know we're, and we're talking about a lot of workers here you know making about 38,000 on average a year or whatever the cleaning staff they're entitled to 11 sick days at 100 percent 120 sick days at 90 percent but if you look at the average number of sick days taken it's about 15 per employee so you know we don't have the it's not this mass sickened but you know from the public perspective, if you're talking about 120 sick days and you're talking about, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, we were negotiating and all of a sudden everybody stopped and then they're right on strike, you're right. That's a difficult narrative for the, for the unions to, um, to, to, to manage. And the, the problem with that is, and, and Sherry re- refers to, you know, there's more, more um, uh, collective bargaining agreements in, and bargaining coming up. And, you know, if, this, if that narrative is, is sort of prevailing already, then, yeah, the unions may be starting from a, a back point. I mean, the reality is they're negotiating now. My understanding is they started at 4.30 today. Right. Mm-hmm. So I suspect you will probably see an agreement by Sunday night. All right. But, you know, to your point, Sherry, uh, that this is just sort of the first wave and then you've got the teachers because uh, they'll be in a position to strike as well, I guess, uh, having voted a strike mandate. And then beyond that, uh, you're talking about other public sector unions. Is there an appetite for that? I mean, uh, it may be within the union ranks, but the public, if I'm getting it right from people who have called into the program, have lost their patience with this because it seems like it's happening all too frequently. Well, it's happening because of cutbacks. But, I mean, you've got to, you know, see also that, you know, there are billions. I mean, I I just can tell you from when my kids were in school and they're adults and from when I was in school in the Toronto public school system, I mean, there are a lot of people not there anymore. And the buildings are falling apart. We have billions of dollars worth of repairs that aren't happening in our buildings that the school boards are having to pick up. Again, it's been cut back after cut back with successive governments, true. It's not just the Conservatives that have been responsible for that. But there's a certain point at which you just can't cut anymore. And I think we've reached that point. And the sad reality is that people with means will take their children out and send them to private schools. And so what you're seeing is, will be seeing, is a privatization of the public system, which I think is is a terrible Yeah, but who's going to prompt that? You know, there is a tipping point. And I, I would concede that 
that point, I hear more and more people suggesting that, you know, we go to a voucher system so that the money follows the child. They're getting tired of the public well, education Well, then, system. you know, children with means get an education and children with others, you know, don't get as good well, an who, education. And well, that who's is bringing not, that about, though? Well, but th- that's, you know, the government is bringing that about because they're oh. the funder. They're the sole funder. Really? Um, well, you know, our taxes are the sole funders of our public school system. Um, and I think, I think, though, to Michael's point, and, and I think it's an important one, I think the narrative that the unions put forward has to be clear, and it has to be about what's best for the students. Uh, and, and in some cases, that's come across well, in other cases, it has not. I think it is what's best for the students, what they're doing. I mean, you're talking about not only 38000 a year being the average, but some of these people are not paid for, the, for their summers off. They just mm-hmm. get paid when they work. I mean, this is, this is outrageous. Um, and I remember guidance counselors, and we used to call them truancy officers and things. We used to have so many more adult eyes in, in those classrooms that we don't have. And the buildings, in my writing, um, billions of, of repair but let dollars me ask you, still. Okay, but you know what, Sherry? I mean, under mm-hmm. the liberal government of Dalton McGetty, and you were there, you yeah. know, and Kathleen yeah, yeah. Wynne, uh, education spending more than doubled. Well, so how can we still have the same grievances? They were against Bob Ray for the same issues. Mike Harris, subsequent to that. I mean, it's just incessant. Well, it's, what will placate these people? Part I of the problem was, you know, Mike Harris kind of revamped the educational system and changed the way we pay and made it a kind of, you know, a, a per student payment. I mean, you can't run. A, 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 and then if, you know, enrollment goes down, I had two schools in my writing that were slated for closing. They're now busted at the seams. Had they been closed by the then liberal government, we would be in even worse shape. You can't look at it a per capita system. You have to look at you've got lights on, whether there's 20 kids in the classroom or where there's 40 kids in the classroom. So again, there are certain base costs that have to be done. We have to change the funding formula, and the funding formula that's been in place since Mike Harris is a uh-huh. real problem. All right, well, yeah. uh, again, you know, as you said earlier, too, uh, when the unions are presenting this about their own personal grievances, I don't know if it's really about the kids at that point. Well, and you'll never get the right enough, enough money. There's never enough money that's going to placate uh, the organizations, and, and quite frankly, there are school boards uh, that have that have been spending and have been not relocating the money uh, properly and towards funding towards construction and towards better schools. There's been stories about, you know, school boards with iPhones and spending millions of dollars recklessly on, on issues like that that you can actually easily carve away and spend money elsewhere. And I think what Doug Ford is trying to do is simply say, look, there's better ways of spending money. There's better ways of allocating the funds that you get from school boards. Uh, and I think the unions are missing out on this opportunity. And they're making this about Doug Ford, which is why I think they're losing the message on this. Yeah, and they are having a problem with the message because, you know, the message is the kids are first, the kids are the most important part of this whole thing, and you go from collective bargaining for 36 hours to a strike. And, you know, these things, you can come Monday morning, if there is a strike... There may be some sympathy, and, and obviously I think there will be for, for the employees and that kind of thing, but that sort of wears quickly as people start to deal with, you know, taking time off work, finding daycare, all that kind of stuff. And the narrative can turn very quickly if the perception is that uh, this is just about money or just about sick days or whatever else, you know, because these people are looking and saying, my kids aren't in school. And don't forget, there's also a lot of ancillary impacts to this. You know, there's all sorts of city programs that run out of schools. There's all sorts of other stuff that happens in schools, and everyone gets affected by that, and people can turn fairly quickly on that. And I, I mentioned because just at this stage, the government seems to have been controlling the narrative on this more effectively than, than the other side. Right. And the fact that the government, by the way, Johnny, actually got them back to the table again, you know, yeah. and I think to, to Mike's point, I think this weekend will be crucial, but it was the government that said, let's get back to the table and let's get, get back into good faith bargaining. Yeah, public perception is really critical at this juncture, and uh, we'll see where that one goes. Keep our fingers crossed that there is nothing too disruptive come Monday morning for the families with kids.
All right, let's get back into it. Got a good one going. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. John Capobianco, Michael Giles, the Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo. Just as a postscript to our previous discussion on uh, the pending CUPE strike and withdrawing services from the schools and creating turmoil for families and such, I just wonder, the decision by the board, TDSB, Peel Region, York Region, to close the schools Monday, this was made yesterday. Michael, what's your sense? I mean, uh, did they jump the gun here a little bit? Because, uh, I mean, maybe you could have continued on so some of the classrooms don't get cleaned and so on. But, you know... You wait it out. Was it necessary to close the school? Well, and and not going to second guess the boards, but what I will say is that um, from a, uh, the perception of parents and and from a narrative point of view, I think it's a, a huge mistake because you know in the past we've had strikes where schools have stayed open for two or three weeks, where you know people try to manage and all that kind of stuff. So to be you know you go from a thirty-six hour bargaining thing to uh, you know you're closing the schools the very first Monday, you know, this, and then negotiating on a Friday. Um, the, the from the public perception, it'll be like, why does this have to happen? happen so fast and that and again I, I know I always talk about the narrative and only because it, these kinds of things are always uh, influenced by the narrative if there was a public perception that you know this is all a conspiracy and all that kind of stuff you're in trouble because you're not going to win in the long run all right well there is that perception people have brought it to my attention saying geez you know we could have volunteered we would have went in picked up kids after school cleaned uh, whatever was necessary John, was it uh, premature to close the schools? I think it was very premature to close the schools. There's no question that, you know, when QP strikes, uh, you know, makes a strike uh, strike effort and strike notion, uh, leaves the bargaining table, and all of a sudden all the school boards start coming in together saying that they're going to close schools under the very next day. That You know, usually you, you let, let a week or two go by or three weeks go by to sort of see what you can do. And I think there's a lot of parents who would have stepped in and, and been able to help and do things, and uh, students in various schools would have stepped in and helped out on various things. But, you know, to leave parents... The, the, just you know, basically empty-handed on Monday, uh, if the strike continues, uh, to find you know daycare and, the, and people from work from homes just discredits them, and I think it does a disservice to the unions. Quite frankly, it speaks to people's perception about them and saying, well, well, is there some sort of thing going on? Are they talking to each other? Are they having this kind of you know effort to try to to make it even harder, put more pressure on the government? I think that's the problem. Well, the kids weren't even given the opportunity to wallow in their own filth, Sherry. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, again, there's it's not just a one-sided thing here. People are driven to strike. Nobody wants to strike. Um, I think this is the government's brought this on themselves, and now this is what's happening. I think the school boards are doing the prudent thing and, and uh, absolutely guaranteeing the safety of the students. And if it is an act of solidarity with unions, good on them. I mean, this is, uh, you know, they're concerned about, um, about <laughs> reasonable workloads, and uh, they're concerned about people having a fair shake, and that's, right. I hope, what we're all concerned about. But they're about. not concerned about the kids, though. Well, I think they are concerned about the kids. I mean, and, you know, these children are going to grow up. The, the, the unions, the let's, let's remember, you know, created the middle class um, small business in the unions. And, you know, this this is this is a world that is, you know, we're losing, you know, decent right, jobs quickly. So do you quickly. think that they, they bore um, in mind the fact that they'd be disruptive to a lot of families on Monday on short notice? Well, I, again, this is not the union's fault. This is the government's fault oh. for not bar- for bringing in the cuts in the first but place. But the government brought them back um, to the table. Uh, and, the oh, well, again, we're, we're looking at cuts involving uh, millions of dollars. We're involving lots of jobs, and mm. there's going to be a reaction, clearly. Let me ask about yeah. something else, because I want to move on. Time is tight. Andrew Shear was in town today, and... Uh, he was talking up uh, a policy on guns and gangs, and uh, as we get it sort of in uh, point form, uh, he wants to get the Border Services Agency, a task force working with the uh, Americans, to disrupt gun smuggling routes. Uh, 
Also, mandatory sentences at least five years if you possess a smuggled firearm. Uh, he also said something interesting about gangs being categorized as terrorists. Give a listen. A conservative government will formally identify gangs in the criminal code in a manner similar to what we currently do for terrorist organizations. This will help reduce court delays, end the waste of prosecutorial resources, and ensure fewer gang members get released on a technicality. All right. He's also planning to introduce new mandatory minimum sentences for some gang offenses, an automatic parole violation for convicted criminals who return to their gangs after getting out of prison. Now, if you consort, I guess, with people who have criminal records, that's a parole violation in and of itself. But if they are a gang designated as a gang, a terrorist organization, it seems like he's uh, really trying to get stiff on this. And rather than proposing like a handgun ban, as Justin Trudeau had sort of suggested he'd offload that to the municipalities in their discretion, or a ban on AR-15, the assault rifles that have really not claimed any lives in mass shootings, maybe two instances in this country's history in the last 50 years as people have looked into it. Is Sheer all around the net on this one, John? I think he's bang on on this one, and I think he's trying to make the difference between what, he's trying to distill exactly what the problem is here in Toronto specifically, but across, across Canada. And he realizes that a lot of the murders and a lot of the shootings that happen, especially in Toronto, as we've seen over the course of this summer and, and, and past years, has been gang-related. And I think that what he's trying to do is get to the crux of the problem. He's been talking to, obviously, police officers and the police chief who basically said uh, that this issue of bail and, and, you know, criminals are actually laughing. They're, they're going in and they're, they're getting out on bail within weeks and they're committing the same crime and they're going back in there. So I think Andrew was doing the right thing by saying, look, there are law-abiding citizens who, who use guns for sport and for recreation, uh, and let's not penalize them and give them more rules and more laws to go for. The, the, the real problem is the gangs. Let's get them identified. Let's get them off the streets and let's give policing more resources to ensure that they have the resources to get to get the gangs in jail and guns off the street. Sherry, going after the gang part of the equation, more important than, you know, suggesting gun bans and the like? Well, I, I think anything that reduces the number of guns on our streets is a good thing. Uh, and however you affect that, that's great. But when will we finally learn that more punishment does not mean less crime? We just have to look south of the border to the United States, who lock up more people for longer periods of time than any other country just about in the world, um, and and look at the crime levels down there. Yeah, I mean, we it does. when will we start looking at what costs causes these kids to join gangs and, you know, do something preventative, just like our grandmothers always told us, well, an ounce of prevention. Both? Can't you do both? Um, I mean, well, the preventative we social justice stuff. But and we're, then... not, we're not doing the prevention. You know, part of the cutbacks that uh, sadly have come from the, from the Ford government here, you know, affect exactly these kids. I mean, so we need to be looking at how do we get kids motivated? How do we get them into jobs? How do we get them into the trades? How do we get them minute. into school? You had the chief of police tweet yesterday that... Uh, his officers tried to bring somebody in on a gun-related offense, and the response was they were shot at. The guy shot at them with a three eighty uh, millimeter handgun, and uh, he was out on bail at the time. Chief's question at the very end, it's not a rhetorical one, uh, How? when are we going to get this right? you got people out on bail that really don't worry about consequences anymore. They're, uh, you know playing fast and loose with the law. They're laughing at it effectively. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Sherry, I don't discount the notion that there may be social programs that might eventually uh, change the equation. But in the immediate, don't we need to get tough on some of these things, uh, a little stricter on the, the enforcement component of things, Michael? I think we do. I think people who are using, you know, anybody who has a smuggled firearm 
has no good intent. It's not defensive. It's not, you know, uh, they're not going target shooting. So I think, we, they, and I think the public is ready for that. I think people are, are, are tired of this, and especially guns coming across the border. I mean, and, and working with the, you know, U.S. authorities, uh, you know, I can't see any downside to this. You know, the United States, one of the most effective pieces of legislation I think they brought in in combating, you know, organized crime and everything in the United States was the, called it RICO, the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act. And essentially, it made it, it made it a crime to belong to these things. And it got people like John Gotti and it got people like uh, other, you know, other organized crime organizations because just belonging to uh, a racketeer, you know, racketeering, they call it there, but a racketeering influence corrupt organization was uh, a reason to put you in jail. So I think they have to do something to this company. You know, if you look at the number of people that are being shot in this city and, you know, the, the fact that it's almost all gang related, uh, we have to do something. Like, we just have to do something. And the mayor has proposed things, you know, that I think are, are, are are help going to be effective. I think there's other things. We just have to, everybody has to work on this. And one of the things is stop these guns coming across the border. And All it's right. different background check as well, right? Michael? Well, yeah, yeah, he's advocating for that as well. That's Shears versus Trudeau's plan. Uh, and so they're perhaps uh, distinct in that regard. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. We're into the home stretch. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. Seven minutes away from the top of the hour and the global news at six with Farhan Asser and Alan Carter right now with our panel. By the way, uh, you know, much being said about uh, the finding yesterday that uh, Andrew Shear has dual citizenship. Mind you, the conservatives, uh, they say that Justin Trudeau's a climate hypocrite because, uh, you know, he's got two planes. So... <laughs> Are the two situations analogous or one more egregious than the other, Sherry? Uh, well, certainly, I, I, I think the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is more egregious than the two planes, and that's what's really tarnishing uh, Justin's climate uh, cred. Um, I think on the Andrew Shear thing, I, this seems to me kind of a, a, a non-issue, except for the fact, I mean, remember Thomas Mulcair and St- uh, Stefan Dion? I mean, they had dual citizenship, too, and that was used by the Conservatives against them. But, I mean, here's the situation. You don't automatically become a dual citizen. Like, his father, if his father's, like, you have to apply for it. So right. I think if there's anything to the story, it's that, that he actually wanted to be an American dual no, citizen. But I mean, be. He, all, it's you know, conferred by birth. He's trying to get out from under. He's trying to uh, renounce, renounce it. it. And, and, yeah, and it but, takes but 14 you, months. But, but you can't, you don't, but you have to apply for it. I know. My kid's dad was American. Oh. You don't automatically have a dual citizenship. You have to apply for it. That somehow has been missed by the media. You, you know, it doesn't happen automatically and you don't have to renounce it. You have to apply for it in the first place. But, but, but uh, either way, Either way, honestly, Small I don't. Beer. I think it's not a big issue. All right, yeah, John. yeah. No, I was going to say, and I and I agree. I think it's much to do about nothing, and I think the liberals are trying to jump on anything uh, from anybody that's happening other than themselves. And I think that's you know proof point with respect to this. But I do think, though, Sherry, to your point, I think it probably would have been his parent, you know, who would have probably enlisted him or got him to be the the, the, the dual father. citizen. The father would have mm-hmm. done it, um, and he would have been proud. His sisters live in the U.S., and I think it's all it's all good. And I think he realized that he needed to denounce it and has renounce it and has and. And it's just taking some time. But nonetheless, um, let's not lose sight of the fact that Justin Trudeau, with respect to two planes, uh, again, the hypocrisy of all this, you know, the, this, the fact that he, you know, claims, claims to be the, the climate change uh, champion of, of Canada, and yet he does this and he says, well, we've, we've bought offsets for it. And, well, really, I think people are starting to understand or not understand what these offsets are and what exactly, just because you've got some money and you could throw around somewhere, you can buy some offsets. Well, they bought of, them, apparently, according to reports from Bullfrog Power, and who said? on the board of Bullfrog Power, Michael Giles. 
I know I haven't been sitting on the board of Bulls. <laughs> no, you know, for years. It's Jerry, it's Jerry Butts. I know. I know. Well, all right. So it's you know uh, inside baseball. I mean, this is one of the th- these are the kinds of things when this uh, is what drives voters crazy. Yeah, right? it, and it I think does. the dual citizenship thing is. I mean, I'm a dual citizen. I was born in and, and the, Irish. I, yeah, Irish and yeah. British actually, because they both claim Belfast, right? It's, oh. uh, it's two gods and two soccer teams, <laughs> but the um, uh, so. I, and again, I think you're right. I think the, 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 his parent probably registered it. But I think the other process is where you actually do it is when you, want, you initiate a passport. Like I was born in, in, in um, Northern Ireland, so I had a British passport. And I had to, you know, I was by birth an Irish citizen. So when it really became the thing is when you actually apply for a passport. Do they equate? Absolutely not. Because, you know, millions of Canadians have dual citizenship. And most of them are going to turn around like me and say, you know, we love this country. It's, our, it's a country we love. You know, it's where we live. It's everything else about it. And that's what we're loyal to. And so compare that to the fact you're flying around with two airplanes and presumably with, you know, canoes or whatever else on the second one. It just doesn't equate. <laughs> and it, it, it registers in people's minds that that seems hypocritical. Somebody actually pointed out that uh, Justin is a dual citizen. He's a citizen of Quebec <laughs> and Canada. <laughs> I just didn't know. Well, look, uh, we'll leave that on that note, by the way, uh, with Quebec uh, playing large in this campaign and uh, Toronto as well. It's going to be a heck of a night down at uh, the rink tomorrow night. Montreal's in town. This is going to be madness. I was talking to Melissa at the Harbor 60 Steakhouse earlier today because, you know, the not quite the Algonquin Roundtable meets every Friday. She was saying like 500-plus reservations. It's a busy week. You want to get yours in. There's some things I'm looking on the calendar. Uh, Leafs and Blues, the Stanley Cup champs are in on Tuesday. Further down the road, Carrie Underwood in town with the Cry Pretty Tour. That's on October the 14th, the Monday of the long weekend. Make your reservations now. It's uh, one of those wonderful occasions when we get to the Harbor 60 Steakhouse, which is really uh, one of the best dining establishments you'll ever get to on any continent. It's renowned, and uh, they've got all the spaces and amenities for whatever your occasion. And whatever your occasion, it's going to be a special one at the Harbor 60 Steakhouse in the iconic Toronto Harbor Commission building, right south of the Scotiabank Arena. By the way, as a last order of business, in about uh, 30 seconds or less, this is what came up for discussion with the not-quite-the-Algonquin roundtable. You know, in North Carolina, there was a guy who sued uh, a gentleman who actually seduced his wife. It was a co-worker, and uh, they had an affair. And so this guy, claiming alienation of affection, won $750,000. Uh, and the argument being that this individual who felt wrong, the original husband, says he believes in the sanctity of marriage. He said, I filed the case because I feel that it's very important that people understand that the sanctity of marriage is important, especially in this day and age. And the gentlemen around the table all agreed it was a good thing. <laughs> the alienation of affection law. They don't have it in every state, but the sanctity of marriage. You've married people. I mean, you're I a, have, a minister, Sherry DeNoble. I have, and I would say, you know, according to stats, about 50% of, of marriages have some element of infidelity in them. The lawyers will be very, very busy, John, if this gets out and becomes uh, the case in any other jurisdiction. Well, they've got I it mean, in about I, five I, or know, six states. But uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I find it... You don't think it's I, a good law? I, I find it very bizarre. I don't think uh, that they uh, belong in a, in, a, in a courtroom. I think they belong with marriage counselors. Well, they say it's mean. like a, a personal injury case. You know, you've got damages, you're hurt, and uh, so you call a lawyer. And it's a you lawyer's get, dream. You get indemnified. Makes sense to you in 10 seconds or less, John? What a precedent. Only in the U.S., that's all i got to say. It will never happen in Canada, but only in, the, only in America, and only in Trump's America, by the way. Well, no, it's North Carolina, and it predates him. It goes back to English common law for 250 
50 years they've been practicing. Michael, good idea or no? Uh, it's a great law no one ever said. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's insane. Oh, except the guys at Harbor 60 in the quite <laughs> the Algonquin Roundtable. Let's end on that note. It's been a great day and great week for Talk Radio. Thank you, John Capobianco, Michael Giles, and the Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo. And to Dusty Lawless in for Mary Feely and to, to uh, Loretta Milnovich for filling in this afternoon. Y'all have a nice weekend. We hope it's not too disruptive. Uh, keep you posted on any developments insofar as the teachers uh, or the education strike. We're done for the day. Have a good night. I'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.